All right, you can have a seat. Hey, Josh Bonner, do you mind handling my Nalgene? Thank you. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. One of our kind leaders will pass one out to you. Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. That tasted terrible. I should have washed my water bottle. That was gross. Hey, Josh, if you, can you get me a cup of water? That, like, tasted bad. Okay, Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be in verse 18 through 20. This is part four of The Quiet Life the last part in our four-part series about living a life that's unnoticed by people, but it glorifies God. And this evening, what I'm hoping to do, because I know there's a lot, how many of you are graduating seniors by show of hands? Yeah, so a good number of you. A number of you, uh, this might be, I mean, you're welcome to stay for the rest of the month, for sure, but we're going to Hungary next Friday. So this might be the last impact you hear me teach. So in thinking about that, in planning for that, and praying about that, what is the one thing that I want to leave with you guys, as well as everybody in impact? What's our goal? And that's what I want to focus on tonight. Next Friday, by the way, we're going to have a guest speaker, Joe Focht from Calvary Chapel, Philly, who's amazing. He's a great guy. You guys are going to love him. And then the following week, you get Pastor Brian Higgins. So you will not miss me. It's going to be amazing. So at the end of Matthew chapter 28, you have Jesus' parting words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And he tells them to do something. He gives them a command. And this command isn't just for the original disciples, but it's for all people that call themselves followers of Jesus. So... That being said, let's read the passage, we'll pray, and we'll get started. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Amen. Lord, we pray that tonight you give us wisdom from heaven, that tonight would be a special night for many people, that they hear your word, that they know your voice, they know that you're here. We pray, Lord, that tonight, Lord, we would have a clear vision of what it is that you want us to do as believers. That even when people graduate and they go off to college, they'd have a clear word from heaven as to what their mission is all about. So I pray all these things, Lord. And I pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Jesus is ascending into heaven, he's about to leave his disciples on the earth after he had resurrected from the dead. This is what we as Christians believe. We believe that 2,000 years ago that the same God who made the universe decided to come down into earth as a man. Although he was still God, he became a man 
so that he could die for the sins of the world. All of us commit things called sin. It's wrongdoings. It's mistakes. It's every time that you hurt someone, every time you lie about someone, every time you deceive someone. Big or small, that's all sin. And all of that hurts not just people, but it hurts God. And so God, in order to solve the problem, knew that the only way to rid sin out of the universe is to have a perfect sacrifice, a perfect life to make up for the lives that were ruined. And that life had to not just die, but live a perfect life that we should have lived. And that's exactly what Jesus did. All of us sin. If we, if we sit down and we just had a conversation, I think... Everyone would agree that we're all deep down inside, even though we like to believe we're good people, we all make mistakes. And since Jesus never sinned, he proved to us that there's a way to get to heaven, and it's only through him. And when he did that, when he decided to die on the cross, he didn't stay dead, but we believe that he actually rose from the dead three days later, proving that he was God. And so this is something that we can discuss and we can talk about. It's happened in history, and this is the one thing that we as Christians stake our lives on. We say, we believe that Jesus Christ is God, and he actually resurrected from the dead, which, if you think about it, is kind of ridiculous. It almost seems like it's like a, a sci-fi movie or something you watch on TV or in a movie. But we are crazy enough to believe it because we're not just taking it on blind faith, but we're taking it based on our own personal experience. And we ask ourselves, does a Christian worldview line up with what uh, actually plays out in reality? Does it hold up to reality? Does it explain the universe, how we got here? Does it explain concepts like love? Does it explain things like meaning and purpose? We believe that it does. And unlike what most people believe, if you take Christianity and you put it against the other worldviews, it pales in comparison. Or the other worldviews pale in comparison compared to Christianity. Some worldviews believe that people were formed, that the earth was formed because the sun like melted in this like think of mud and just molted and whatever some people believe that we've always been and you reincarnate and after you die like and no one ever looks at those beliefs and says well that's ridiculous everyone says oh yeah that seems like a viable belief some people really genuinely believe that and then when it comes to yeah jesus christ came to the world he died on the cross everyone's like well that's ridiculous i could never believe in that and there's a factor to it which i think should inherently be unbelievable because if it was completely believable just based on face value, then it wouldn't be anything special. If we found out that Jesus went into a coma for five hours and then came out of the coma, no one would stake their lives on it and no one would say that he's probably God. But if Jesus could do what only God can do, then maybe he actually is who he says he is. And so Jesus, who proved that he was God and showed up even to some of the most doubting disciples like Thomas, Jesus decided to give one last mission, a commission to his people. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. You see, we've been learning about the quiet life, having diligence behind the scenes, knowing that the one who's supposed to be in the spotlight is not us. Whenever we're in the spotlight, we just get like completely fearful, worried that people are going to see our mistakes. When we're Whenever we're in the public eye, it just destroys people. Famous people go crazy because we're never meant to be in the spotlight. Jesus is. And that is our job, to work diligently behind the scenes so that we can put Jesus on display. And so what happens is Jesus gives this mission, but it doesn't mean inactivity. 
The quiet life doesn't mean a life of inactivity. The quiet life means that you're being diligent with what God has called, called you to do, even if it means that nobody sees what you're doing. But that doesn't mean that you're not doing anything. Jesus, Jesus has specifically called us to do some things. This, listen to what it says in verse 18. It says, Jesus came and spoke to them, a group of people. Because you see, a community of disciples are to be making more disciples. So if tonight you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, this message is for you. Jesus didn't pull aside Peter and say, hey, listen, I got this mission for you. You're to make disciples of all the nations. He said this to 11 people. He said this to his group of followers. Now, what's funny about this is we all look at this verse and we take it for granted, I think, sometimes. Because imagine this. Imagine Jesus, you're with Jesus. He's giving one last mission. But instead of him saying, I want you to go and make disciples. Imagine Jesus said, I want you to go and make a castle, like a real castle. Imagine he pulled you aside tonight and said, hey, listen, Chandra, I don't know, whatever your name is, I want you to build a castle, and I want it to look like this. I want there to be a princess inside, or I don't know, whatever. And then there's like a dragon in the middle that like people can defeat as the final boss to rescue the princess. Whatever he says, if Jesus were to tell you to make a castle, I don't think one person in this room would think, oh, that seems like an easy thing I can do by myself. Now, let's say that he pulled 11 of you aside and said, guys, I have a great idea. I want you to build a castle. I don't think 11 of you would think, oh, that's great. You know what? I think we can, like, we're pretty talented. We're pretty strong. We can all do this together. And building a castle is infinitely more easy than making disciples of all the nations. And this is what Jesus calls us to do. Yet somehow, in some way, as Christians, we believe like this evangelism thing, this discipleship, discipleship making thing, this is something I do on my own personal time when I feel like it. But Jesus is calling us to be a community that works to make a community of disciples. We're to be a community together and to be doing this together to make disciples, to glorify the Lord. It's something that we can't do on our own. Yesterday, we got to go to Newark, and we were working with the Rock Christian Fellowship, and it's really exciting because God was putting on one man's heart maybe about five to ten years ago to plant a church, and we sent him from our church, and it's, he's been able to obtain a building about four years ago, and, and this building has been around since the 1800s. So since it's old, we've been able to, for the past couple years, bring a team of people over to paint, to decorate, to do all kinds of different things, to prep the building so that it could be uh, habitable and, and be able to, to, for people to go in and just be able to worship. And yesterday, what we did is we just brought a group of almost 20, 20 people to paint the gates and to be able to paint the, the walls of the building outside. And the one guy who was there, Israel, was just really thankful because he was saying, you know, if you guys weren't here, I will be doing all this by myself. And that is the beauty of the body of Christ, is we're to be doing this work that God calls us to do together, not alone. And when we try to face it on our own, that is what makes us feel crushed. That's what makes us, leads us to despair. It's when we all try to do all of this work by ourselves. But what Jesus is commanding us to do is too much for any one person to do by themselves. So the main point of this message is this, that Jesus has called us to be a community of disciples that make disciples. 
which means this. Our goal is not two things. This means our goal, number one, isn't just to become deeper Christians. It's to make disciples. I'll say that again because that is one of those things that if you didn't catch it, you could actually be living your entire Christian life the wrong way. It's that important. Our goal as Christians is not just to become deeper Christians, it's to make disciples. And actually, if we're truly becoming a deeper disciple, it will mean that we follow in all of Jesus' steps, including making disciples. And what happens is we kind of bring in this, like, I just have a personal walk with Jesus. I'm just going to live my life, do my own thing, and maybe evangelize here and there. If, if, you know, I feel like it's just, it's right there in front of me. But no, this is actually, it doesn't just start with your personal conversion, but it actually will lead to you reaching out to other people. So I hope that you know, like, our goal here for you being at the high school youth group isn't just that you become a deeper Christian. It's so that you look to pour into other people to make more deeper Christians. Even in John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus was always thinking about trying to bring other people into the fold. He's always trying to think about, who are the people that are not in this room? Who are the people that are not being discipled? How can we reach those people? How can we feed the thousands? How can we, he's always thinking broad. He was always thinking about bringing the gospel out. And here's what happened. It's all of his disciples tried to do the opposite. They tried to make discipleship exclusive. Remember blind Bartimaeus, this blind beggar on the side of the road, he's calling out to Jesus, and his disciples said, like, be quiet. He doesn't have time for you. Little kids want to walk up to Jesus, and the disciples are like, Psh, sorry, kingdom's not for kids, it's for adults. When you get a little bit older, then you can approach Jesus. There's the people in the temple that try to make you pay a tax in order to offer sacrifices to God. Even the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and all, the, all these different things. People were always trying to make a relationship with Jesus exclusive. You're not allowed to get in. You have to look a certain way. You have to talk a certain way if you want to belong with us. Well, I hope you don't feel like that if you come here tonight. I don't even feel like I have to be older in order to go to impact. I have to be cooler. I have to dress a certain way. I have to look a certain way. I have to talk a certain way. I have to know a certain lingo in order to fit in. It's not true. Because Jesus is always looking for the outsider to bring into the middle of the circle. And therefore, it should be our job, too, to think about who are on the outskirts that I can bring in. It's a very, it's a very depressing life to always be thinking about yourself. To go to a church gathering, to go to a meeting, to go hang out with friends, and always think about who's going to bless me, who's going to love me. In actuality, as you look to love others as you would love yourself, do unto others as you would have other people do unto you, that's what Jesus said, that is actually the most fulfilling life. Because you don't even think about yourself. And then as you're giving to others, as you're blessing others, you're like, you know what, I'm going to give 10 bucks to the person who doesn't have money for lunch. You know what, I'm going to say something nice. I'm going to compliment somebody else because I would want someone to do that to me. When you do that, suddenly you see how happy a person is because they don't have anybody doing that to them. And then you, you realize that you have usefulness in the world. You can bless somebody with the little bit that you give. Like, what is $10? But imagine you go to the gas station when you're filling up. Those of you that are like 17 and older, you go to the gas station, and you're just like, I'm going to pay for somebody else's gas, just some random stranger. Imagine if you did that. It will blow people's minds. And is like $30, $40 really going to be the end of the world for you? Some of you will be like, yes. 
Yeah, like that's my life savings, okay? You'll get another $40. You could probably like work some in somebody's yard and make 40 bucks, right? But you could do that and literally change a person's outlook on life. And this is what Jesus calls you to do. To be an agent of change so you can make disciples, more people that can glorify the Lord and share his love with others. He's always looking for people not just to become deeper disciples, but to make disciples. Secondly, so our goal is not just to become deeper Christians, it's to make disciples. Number two, our goal isn't just to see people saved, it's to see people in a loving relationship with God. Now this one, I think most of us will be guilty of. Because this is what I was most guilty of when I was in high school. Our goal is not just to see people saved. It's to see people in a loving relationship with God. Okay, imagine that as you're a little bit older, you're old enough to get married. You see a couple or a potential couple. You see a guy, you see a girl, and you're like, oh, man, I would love to set those two people up. And imagine if your entire goal was just to get them married. That's it. You didn't care if they got a divorce afterwards. You didn't care if they had a terrible marriage. You just thought, as long as I get them married, that's fine. That's good. Like, what kind of friend would you be? Not thinking about, like, are they compatible? Is this, like, a healthy relationship? You're just thinking, I want them to, I, I want them to invite me to the wedding one day, and if I do, then my mission is accomplished. But that's what we do as Christians. What we think is, I just need to bring them to church, bring them to impact. They raise their hand to receive Jesus, and I'm done. Whew. Over. Good. I'm safe now. And you don't think about what happens afterwards. After they've received Jesus, are you going to watch them come into a loving relationship with Jesus? A loving community of believers? Or are you just going to say like, well, it's up to the Holy Spirit now. I had a childhood friend when I was uh, probably starting when I was about seven years old. And I, I was neighbors with him, really good friends. And we'd play basketball all the time. We would, you know, just ride our bikes to, you know, the girl's house that we liked and whatever. Like, we did everything together. And I remember when I was very little, being able to, like, have this conviction on my heart of, like, I, I want to make sure that this person's going to heaven, you know. And, like, I loved him. And because of that, I wanted to share the good news with him. And so I remember in my backyard sharing the gospel in the most articulate way a seven-year-old could. And then afterwards asking if he wanted to receive Jesus. And he said, yeah, so we prayed the sinner's prayer right there in my backyard. And since then, I haven't kept up with him. And I blame myself for that. Because I thought all I had to do was just prayer, prayer, and then I'm good. And that, I think, is the equivalent of just seeing uh, a couple that you set up get married and then just not care about the relationship afterwards. We need to be thinking for the long, t the long haul. We need to be thinking about the future, thinking about how we can be able to have them in a support system so that they feel loved, not just the first time we meet them, but just throughout their, their life. That they have a community that they can lean on. And so for us, we should always be thinking not just individual relationships, but like who else can befriend this person? It shouldn't just be up to us to just bring a person to church and make them feel loved, but there should be multiples of people. Like it's one thing if the leaders are reaching out to you, and maybe this is you. Because we as leaders are always thinking about, like, who's the one person who's neglected? We want them to feel loved. We want them to feel, like, appreciated. But if all, all the leaders reach out to you, the one individual who feels neglected, all they're going to feel at the end of the day is, wow, the leadership here really loves me. But, like, the rest of the group is so clicky. We need the entire group to be a community of love. So, that being the case, not to just see people saved, it's to see people in a loving relationship 
with God. And I think this means that we approach youth ministry differently. I think it means that we approach everything differently. Because if you think about it, all of our lives, most of us at least, grow up in a church. You've been taught, you've been fed information. And now it's about time that you figure it out for yourself. Now you've come to the place where you ask yourself, is what I've learned all my life in Christian school, in junior high, in the Bible, is this real? Can I take this and bring it into college with me? Can I take this and bring it with my friends and my family and et cetera? You want to know this is real. And I think a lot of people do this wrong because what they do is they just try to feed you more information. So this would be me, like, teaching you a Bible study and not letting you ask any questions, no Q&As, not giving you a for instance, not speaking from my own experience, just kind of saying, like, God's word says so, the end. And then you're like, you've been fed information all your life, and then you have a wake-up call the minute you take it, and you don't know how to apply it. So the analogy I think about is like abortion, right? A lot of, a lot of us have been told all of our lives, abortion is wrong, no matter what. It's evil. If anyone even talks about abortion, they're just a terrible person, you know? Like, that's what you're fed all your life. Abortion is wrong, every circumstance, all the time, period, don't ask any questions. Then you go out into the real world, and one of your friends gets pregnant. And then they're crying in front of you. And as they're sobbing their eyes out and they're talking about what their life will be like now that it's ruined because the person that they slept with, they'll have to be tied to for the rest of their lives. Raise a child as a teenager. As they're just talking about it in front of you, you're sympathizing and you immediately think, well, I was never prepared for this conversation because all I've been told is abortion is wrong. And I obviously cannot say that right now. So what do you do when the information you're given does not seem to actually work in real life? Now, I'm not saying that abortion's right and whatever. That's a different discussion. This is what I'm saying. I'm saying as believers, as Christians, we need to live the gospel outside of the church building. We need to experience it. We need to know that what we're actually reading in the Bible is something that we can actually apply to our world and then show others the same thing. So if we as leaders are just pouring into you and just trying our best and like, hey, this is right and whatever, we need other people. We need you guys to talk to each other. Be like, you know what? I actually tried. I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take this. I'm going to share this with a friend. Hopefully it's encouraging. I have no idea. And then you saw it was. You started pouring into somebody else who was depressed and you started giving them some counsel. Like, I don't really know if this is right, but I'm going to try because that's what the Bible says. And then you see a person lifted from depression. And you're like, oh my goodness, this actually works. But you'll never know unless you actually try it, unless you actually take a step of faith and you try to experience it. But this is what it means to be a disciple. Not just you're saved the end, but you're actually taking it and you're applying it. You're looking for an older, wiser person to pour into your life. And this is what happens is because people have been fed information, they've been taught wrong all of their lives, what they do is they immediately reject all advice from any adult because they obviously don't know anything, which is kind of funny if you think about it. It's almost like Rufio and the Lost Boys. It's like, we don't trust adults. Peter's an adult now, so therefore he can't be trusted. But I think that's just silly because obviously adults have been on the planet a little bit longer. You can trust them because even if they haven't lived your experience, they have some experience that it's at least worth considering rather than some of your friends who know just as much as you do. Like, there's literally nothing separating you from the, some, some of your friends that are the same age. That's why I talk to some people that are older than me because I want to know before I do something stupid that... If I take this step of faith, then I'm not going to be put to shame because I've trusted in the Lord and not in my own understanding. Okay, 
so we've talked about discipleship for a while right now. And we need to talk about, like, what is discipleship? Because some of you are just like, you've been throwing this word around. And we, we might be like, oh, yeah, I know what discipleship is. But if you actually poke at it, some of us might actually not know what it is. I'll give you an example. I taught a youth ministry class that Gabe was a part of, actually, uh, back in June. It was awesome, a lot of fun. And one of the students in the class told me, as you were talking about discipleship, that she went back to her home church and she told some of the leadership, I want to be discipled. And then the leadership said, well, you come on a Sunday, right? You're being discipled. And she was like, um, I, I don't think that's discipleship. I don't think that's what it is. A lot of people have this understanding that discipleship is you just read the word of God and there you go, you're a disciple. But I think that the Bible shows us that discipleship does not happen by accident. Therefore, go and make disciples. This is what Jesus says. That we actually have to be purposeful in going out and making discipleship happen. So the word disciple just means disciplined learner. Disciplined learner. John 8, verse 31 through 32, Jesus said to the Jews who believed, believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So number one, I'll give you three things that a disciple is. Number one, to be a disciple of Jesus means to be one who abides, or in other words, remains in his word. You just, you're in the word of God. You love his word. You're reading every single day because it's the story, the correction, the autocorrect on your life. You're looking at it and saying, this is what life should be. And it's teaching your soul as you read it. Number two, to be a disciple of Jesus means to be a follower of Jesus. It'd be kind of weird to say you're a disciple of Jesus without actually following him. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That Greek word simply means to follow or accompany someone who takes the lead in determining direction and route of movement, or to accompany as a follower to follow to go along with. Simple, but just follow the analogy. When Jesus says to follow me, in those days, you had a rabbi and you had students. It was a student's job to seek out rabbi and almost do this interview process and say, would you disciple me? What could I learn from you? Could I sit with you? And what they would do is they would physically follow the rabbi. Everywhere he went, they would go. And that's why Jesus and his disciples are always together, always hanging out, always doing stuff. Because they wanted to learn everything that he did. They wanted to become like the rabbi. And so to be dis discipled of Jesus is to follow Jesus. You know what this doesn't mean? That means that I can't disciple you. That means no one here can disciple you. Only Jesus can. And we're to be disciples of Jesus, not disciples of Alan, not disciples of Alex, Jasmine, although he's much more competent in discipleship than me. We're to be disciples of Jesus. And then our job is just to say, you know what? Like I have a, a pastor friend who said that he asked a pastor to disciple him when he was young in the Lord. And he said, well, I can't do that, but if you want, I'll follow Jesus and you can follow Jesus and we can try to figure it out together. That's what discipleship is for us as Christians to make disciples, to say, let's follow Jesus together. Let's do this together. And you know what that means? That means I can learn something from you. If we're having a discipleship relationship, I can actually learn something from you. You have something to offer me. You have something to offer older people in general. Someone who's like 50 years old, 
like an older father figure. You can have something to contribute to those people. That's why the Bible says what? You've heard it a billion times, right, because you're young. Let no one despise your youth, but set an example in love and faith and purity to whatever else it says. The reason why you can say, it says that is because you literally have something you can contribute to the older generation, and they have something that they can teach you, and it's to be that kind of relationship, almost like an adoptive relationship, where in adoption, so adoption versus assimilation. Assimilation is, I'm an old person, you become like me. I will assimilate you into my culture. Adoption means, and this is a concept that I robbed from somebody, so I, I'm not making this up. Adoption is, just in a real adopted family, that you are learning and you are also teaching. As you bring in a separate culture, they're teaching you something that you don't know. And you're also being able to bring them into your family and, and offer them something they don't, they don't have. So this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we all follow Jesus together. Number three, to be a disciple of Jesus means to bear fruit. Bear fruit. So, and this is one of those like Christian buzzwords. You just, what does that mean? You're not a Christian. You don't know. I'll explain. To bear fruit is an analogy that the Bible uses time and time again to talk about byproducts of a, a life filled with God's Holy Spirit that magnifies God's name and his glory. So those are big words on purpose because those are Bible words. But to bear fruit is to just multiply God's image, his glory, his goodness in our lives, in the way that we love one another, the way that we make disciples. And this is where you can have fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can have fruits of good works, and you can have fruits of conversion, all different kinds of fruit, but it's a byproduct of having a life transformed by God so that you can glorify God. This is what a fruitful life looks like. And so John 15, 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. Now, there's a scholar named N.T. Wright, and he has a book about discipleship. And uh, he makes a comment about discipleship where he basically says this. I'm not going to quote him because he's a scholar and he kind of talks like really heady. This is what he basically says. If you think about the incarnation, in other words, Jesus becoming a man, that God became flesh, the spirit had, uh, you know, a human, human body just encompassing him kind of a thing. If you think about that, what Jesus did is what we're to do. We're to once again incarnate his love, multiply his love amongst other people so the world sees Jesus and not us. Whenever people are just like, well, this is just who I am. I'm being authentic to who I am. You know what? You hear people say that all the time, like, why are you always angry all the time? I can't help it. This is who I am. Why are you so, and, and when people do that, people's language, whatever, there are certain things that people always say, like, this is just my personality. It's like, well, that's great, but it's not about you. Because if we all just brought out the worst of us all the time, we just offend everybody. But when we, when we bring out God's love, when we bring out the love of Jesus, that's what brings healing and that's what the world needs. There's any more of us. We're to be living the quiet life so that Jesus can be speaking through our lives. Now, why do we avoid making disciples? I think we try to avoid making disciples for two reasons. Number one, we're distracted. So we want to make disciples maybe next week, maybe at the next youth event, maybe when we feel like it, but not now. 
it's not our all-encompassing goal. It's not to think about like, so I want to be something with my life, right? I want to I do something. I want to be a carpenter or I want to work as an artist or whatever. You're thinking of something and you're saying, and the goal of this is to make disciples. It's usually like, I want to do whatever and then if I have time, I'll make disciples. But then you got to ask, is Jesus your Lord and are you following him? If Jesus is your Lord, you should do what he says. And you should follow him in all of his ways. And that's how you become a deeper Christian. When you actually negate that out of your life and say, I just, it's a personal relationship with me and God, the end, and you neglect community, both the unsaved and the saved, you're actually limiting how deep you can go with the Lord because you're not willing to obey his commands. So this is something we can't, we can't just push off to the side and say this, this can wait. My goal my hope, especially for the fall and for those of you that are going off to college or wherever you go, is that you would take this message and say, my goal in life is to make disciples, to glorify Jesus' name, to see his love magnified so that the world with all of its hurt can be brought into healing. But the second reason why I think people make, avoid making disciples is because they feel unequipped. They have no idea how to do it. And once again, it's not about you, right? Not to make disciples of you, Make disciples of Jesus. And this is why Jesus says, once again, in Matthew chapter 28, he says what? In verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gives us the power to make it happen. He's the one who equips us. So don't think about like, I can't make disciples. I know you can't. I can't either. But Jesus can, and he wants to use you to be a vessel who's living quietly so that his voice can speak loudly. This is why he gave us the command, go, and gave us the instructions, baptize and teach. In other words, baptize meaning the initial conversion, right? Not like baptism saves you, but to bring the person to the place symbolically where they're saying, what God, I want to live for God in a certain way to, that resembles what he's already done in my heart. So bring them into that initial conversion and then also teach them, not just leave them at baptism, but teach them to observe all the things that he has commanded us. So the question, should I make disciples, is not a question of ability, it's a question of stewardship. It's not a question of, can I do it? It's a question of, will I do it? Because God has called all of us to do it. It reminds me of the parable of the talents, you know, when there was a one guy who was received some money, and then when the person came to collect the money, he said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 25, I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground, and look, there you have what is yours. But to actually do that, to withhold people from receiving the gospel is to be a bad steward of your time, of what God has given you. So let's just talk about briefly the third and last thing, which is how to make disciples. How to make disciples. So some really practical things. And then we'll, we'll be done for the evening. How to make disciples. I love uh, a tweet by a mentor of Josh Bonring, Andrew Waddell, who's a worship pastor at Calvary Fort Lauderdale. I saw a tweet the other day. I liked it. He said, systems don't make disciples. People make disciples. Love that. And this is why. Because I think, especially if you're a church person, you think in order to be discipled, you have to enter into like a five-step program. You have to meet once a week. You got to get five texts a day and you have to go through a book or something. And that's how you make disciples. Jesus didn't have any of those things. 
Paul the Apostle certainly didn't have any of those things or the time to do it. He was one person traveling from place to place. He didn't have social media. He didn't have texts. He didn't have any of that. And somehow he made disciples. Huh. He didn't have a curriculum. He didn't have a book other than the Bible. And somehow he made disciples. So we have to look to do that. Whatever that was, that's what we should do. Not against systems. I'm not against like a program. But what I'm saying is if we trust in the program, we're not trusting in Jesus. So how did Jesus do it? Number one, I'll give you four ways. This is how Jesus discipled his disciples. Number one, he explained things thoroughly in smaller groups. Mark chapter 4, verse 34 says, Without a parable, he did not speak to them, the disciples. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So he would teach a short story to crowds and then take his disciples aside and say, This is what it means. So what we do after the service today, I just taught a message afterwards, you're like, that didn't make any sense. And then you have smaller groups of people that are going to discuss the message. But listen, it doesn't have to happen on Friday night. You could do that during the week. But no one wants to do that. No one is actually bold enough to do that. No offense. It's true. Even in my own, like, age group, no one is bold enough to say, you know what, let's actually have a spiritual conversation outside of church. And so they always wait for the pastor to do it. Disciples are what pastors do. And I'm a normal person, so therefore I don't make disciples. That's not true. He has called all of us to do the work. Once again, the castle illustration. He didn't get 11 experts to do the castle building on their own. We're all supposed to be building the castle, the kingdom of God. Even if your portion, you may feel like is pretty insignificant. We need to all be there to all be thinking of how we can bring God glory by building his kingdom. Number two. He modeled spiritual disciplines for them. Luke chapter 11 is where Jesus taught his disciples to pray when they asked. So Jesus actually modeled it. Hey, this is how you pray. This is what a life indwelt by the Spirit looks like. Jesus himself went away to pray in the mountains. Jesus spent his alone time with the Lord. And if Jesus, the God of the universe, had to, I think we have to as well. Number three, he asked them questions. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 15, Jesus asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? So Jesus is asking, Hey, like, what are the rumors going around about me? What do people think about me? Hey, some people saying you're John the Baptist, Elijah, some of these other prophets, whatever. He said, Well, what do you think? Who do you think that I am? And this is where Jesus said, you are the son of God. Peter, did I, I don't know what I just said. Peter said, you are the son of God. And you see, for us to be making disciples, we're going to ask hard questions. So like that abortion thing, that's a hard question. And you need to have questions not just of information, but of experience. How do you actually take this and apply it to your daily life? Those are good questions. And we need to learn how to ask the good questions so that we can lead other people in the right direction. Number four, he corrected them. He told Peter in Matthew chapter 16, get behind me, Satan, you're offense to me, you're not mindful of the things of God. So he was willing to tell them when they got off track. And this is where we can probably use some work, right? When you see people doing things they shouldn't be doing, no one actually wants to have the conversation. They just talk to their friends. They start gossiping, saying, could you believe what they did? But not willing to sit them down like, hey, listen, I know, like, I know you're probably cool with that, but it's probably not okay for you to do that. 
Jesus was willing to correct the things in their lives because oftentimes, if you think, well, think about it this way. Sin will always lead you to hurt and destruction. If we're not willing to call out sin in each other's lives, we're allowing our friends to walk in pain due to what we are, uh, we are afraid that people will think poorly of us and therefore we're willing to let them be hurt. That's what you're doing. You're thinking about yourself, not them. So we have to be willing to have the hard, question, uh, the hard conversations. That does not mean that you nitpick a person who's a new believer, just came back into church, and they, you know, they start cursing or whatever. They, like, give them a break. If they just got saved, it's going to take a while. So, like, don't nitpick. Bring them to Jesus, and Jesus will do the cleaning. That's what matters. I love what G. Campbell Morgan says about this. He says about the relationship between teacher and disciple, he says, it's not of a lecturer from whose messages men may or may not deduce applications for themselves, not that of a prophet merely making a divine pronouncement and leaving issues of the same, it's not of a specialist on a given subject declaring his knowledge to the interest of few, the amazement of more, and the bewilderment of most. It's none of these. Discipleship is that of a teacher himself possessing full knowledge, bending over a pupil and for a set purpose with an end in view, imparting knowledge step by step, point by point, ever working on a definite end. So it's personal. So discipleship looks like this. Like as you're living a relationship, you're going to see that there are flaws. You're going to see the areas that they need working on. And then in love, you're saying, hey, listen, like, here's something you should probably work on. And listen, people do that to me. Some of you have been willing to correct me at times and be like, ah, I don't know if they came across the right way. And there's a way to do it respectfully. The Bible says to exhort older people as fathers, you know, to, or mothers if they're, you know, guys or girls. But to be exhorting them in such a way that you're respectful not taking them aside and be like, you really like blew that one. There's a way to correct each other in love because we all have mistakes and we all want to be more like Jesus. This is discipleship. So that includes that we are disciples ourselves. We can't make disciples without being disciples. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. He didn't say become me. He said imitate me. I'm just trying to follow Jesus. So if you kind of follow what I'm doing, you're probably going to be okay. Because Paul had that personal relationship with Jesus. This means that we also desire on a regular basis to see people saved, to see people grow, and be brought into that community of love. While recognizing that none of us are Jesus. So the last thing I'll say about this is this. Uh, when you are being discipled by somebody, and I would encourage everyone to have mentors in their life, people that they could look up to and, and ask questions, but you should never make that person to be Jesus because we're not. Think about it this way. Once again, none of us are Je Jesus, so therefore none of us are fully equipped to make disciples. We need a community of people that reflect the image of God to do that. So discipleship for me looks like this. I'll just show you my pattern. You can copy it if you want. I don't ever have one person in my life that is my discipler. I don't have one person who's Jesus to me, who's like, this is what you got to do next, and let's meet once a week, and let's do I have, like, a bunch of people in my life that I can go to for different things. If I have counseling questions, I have a pastor that I can go to. If I have questions about ministry in general, I have Pastor Lloyd. If I have questions about relationships, I have 
people in my life, elders. I, I sat with the elder this morning, got breakfast with him, an elder who's been married for over 20 years, and I can sit down with him and ask him questions. But, you know, I wouldn't ever put that on a single person. I never, like, put on a single person, like, hey, like, what do you think about marriage? Like, they don't have the experience. So because they don't f- possess full knowledge, I'm going to different people asking different questions, and I want to learn from each and every one of those people. And for us, I think it's, it's a great pattern to say Jesus gave the commission to 11 disciples after Jesus betrayed him because he needed a variety of people, and they were just whacked out, right? Some of them were rich. Some of them were poor. Some of them were of different backgrounds and ethnicities. And he took them and said, you're a diverse community that can reach different people, and I'm sending you out to do the same. And so for us, that's what it should look like. So you should probably start with one because many of you, if not most of you, probably have zero, right? You would say, like, I don't have anybody. How do you have, like, 20? Start with one, and then constantly think about asking questions to older people. Have you ever thought about, like, walking up to an elder at church on a Sunday and saying, like, hey, so you're old. Can you teach me stuff? I don't know. Like, you could probably think of a really good question. I love good questions. And some of you know that, and sometimes it annoys you. But I think you can ask people good questions. My new favorite question is this. I've already asked some of you. But it's more interesting if the person's older. My new favorite question is, if you could do, uh, what would you be doing for a living if you weren't doing what you are doing now? If you could do something else for the rest of your life and it's not what you're doing now, what would that, what would that be? It's my new favorite question because the older you are, the more interesting the question is. And it kind of like taps into like what secret like um, ambitions or desires have they have that they kind of just put on hold because they haven't had time to do it. And so when you're a young person, like, I don't even know the first thing I want to do. But when they're older, it's like a really interesting question. And maybe they have a hobby or maybe they have something that you enjoy and then you can can steal that question if you want. My point is, be okay with stepping out of your comfort zone, whether it's an older person to disciple you or your takeaway for, for um, for this evening is this. Who is a younger person that you can pour into, that you can disciple, that you can mentor? And maybe pray about it. Jesus prayed about his disciples before he discipled them. Maybe you can just say, Lord, who is it that you want me to pour into? Pray about them and commit to praying for them. Commit to reaching out to them. Commit to pouring into them. If you have a driver's license, pick someone up and start driving around. So I did with David Duquesne. David Duquesne's only two years younger than me, but when you're like in high school, it's like, I'm a senior. He was a sophomore. And it's like, whoa, that's like weird if you hang out with a sophomore. And I said like, hey, let's go shoot photos. And then we did. We just had fun. And now Dave's like one of my best friends in the entire world. You don't know. Maybe it can happen to you. So that's my point. Make disciples. Those of you that are going away to college, pray about making disciples. How you can be involved in a church or a small group or whatever. With that, let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that many of these things were practical. Knowing, Lord, that you told Peter that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not be able to stand against it. And if that's true, if it's true that we could build your kingdom and never be put to shame, we could build your kingdom and never fail, then why is it that we don't try? Why don't we try harder? I don't know. But Lord, I pray that you show us in in our heart of hearts what's holding us back from taking that step of faith and just doing it. Lord, I pray for those that don't know you tonight, that maybe just came here for encouragement, maybe came here just seeking you, I pray that you show them that you're real, that the things we're talking about are meaningful, 
We could, they could be anywhere else on a Friday night, but they came here. And so I pray that you'd be faithful to just confirm by your Holy Spirit that there's something different here. There's a community of love, people that want to worship the creator, the God who made them. So with that, Lord, give us direction. Show us what to do. Give us wisdom. And I pray, Lord, if there's any relationships here that have yet to be mended, that they wouldn't leave here today without confessing their sin. Maybe that's you. Confessing their sin and making it right. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.